This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is celebrating International Women's Day. That's right. It is Friday the 8th of March, International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day to our listeners, our female listeners and to our male listeners. I might have a little bit of a uh, talk on that a bit later if we have some time, Doc. Doc, of course, is in Irvine Mahati. I'm Scott Phillips. G'day, mate. How are you? Good day, mate. Good. Good. Very good. Happy International Women's Day, mate. Yeah, happy International Women's Day. Nice and sunny outside, so it's everything is... In Sydney, at least. Well, that's true. Fingers crossed. Yeah. No women in the, in the room, which is part of the problem with International Women's Day. About 90% of our industry is male. And anyone who thinks that uh, we men are better investors than women certainly haven't uh, thought long enough and deep enough. We think we're okay, but uh, not enough women in an industry, mate, is my, is my general view. Do you have a different perspective? Oh, I think that's the, uh, that's the norm. Mm. It could be said that we then let them in, you know? That, mate, that's true. Although, I, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it, it's hard. It's, uh, well, let's not get on a tangent just yet. It's yeah. a hard one to solve, put it that way. Yeah. I've, uh, I make it, I've made a very conscious effort to actively try and find female candidates when we've had jobs open. And as yet, we haven't had anyone who who has applied um, who's been suitably uh, qualified and sufficiently qualified to, to be the best candidate for the job. So uh, a big problem all the way down the value chain. But if you're listening to this, if you're female, thanks for listening. If you're male, also thanks for listening. But do a female in your life a favor, a partner, a mother, a sister, a spouse, or someone, um, give them the podcast. Help them get started investing if you would. I think we'd appreciate it. They'd appreciate it. And I'm sure you think it's the right thing to do as well. Mate, other than that, on this week's podcast, we're going to check in on the big macro. There's quite a bit to do, quite a bit to cover. It's been a bit of news around the place. Not much of it positive, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. And we're going to dip into the full mailbag. We have a bumper mailbag this week. So let's get into it. That's positive. It, that's Always positive. That's always positive. We love mailbag. Right, we love it. Uh, we will, we'll give the mailbag a bit of a plug towards the end. But in the meantime, mate, let's start with the macro. I don't even know where to start. So, so <laughs> man, lots of, lots of concerns. The most recent one, I suppose, overnight was concerns out of Europe that maybe things aren't as strong as they previously were. Some, sign, some signs that maybe monetary policy has to be a bit more accommodative, to use the horrible economic jargon. Mm. Have to, it has to be lower, frankly, to get people spending money. What's going on in Europe? Yeah, so it seems like, you know, they thought, well, they had, you know, they had pulled back on quantitative easing, which right. is basically easy monetary policy. Um, and, um, you know, now they're essentially going back to easy monetary policy because they yeah. think growth is not there. Y- Europe, you know, is a, f- is a funny place because, well, I, don't, I mean, Europe is a nice place. I shouldn't say it's a funny place. <laughs> <laughs> Europe is actually a very, really well, nice place. Well, I've met some Europeans. I didn't, I didn't oh, say they're, they're, they're great. I have lots of friends and, 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 and they're all great. Um, <laughs> uh, so, That's I, the sound of Doc shoveling himself out of a big hole. I'm, I'm just trying to extricate myself. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, growth has been really elusive in, in, um, in the Eurozone. And, um, yeah, this is basically Mario Draghi there, which is basically their RBA equivalent, mm-hmm. uh, not really like the super RBA equivalent because they're right. Gone. The European <laughs> Central Bank, one bank to rule them all over in Europe. <laughs> exactly. So this is like the RBA plus plus of, uh, of <laughs> Europe. He's basically saying that, you know, there's not enough growth. We need easy market policy. So therefore, you know, and and what I, what I what I think is interesting is that he blames it all on um circumstances uh, break exit um, yeah. protectionism and so on but i mean you know many of these problems have existed for a while but maybe there are broader deeper problems here i'm not sure but yeah i mean it's been 10 years since uh, you know 2000 or 
yeah, no, more than 10 years since 2008. So yeah. you think the economic engine would start uh, growing. That's the weird thing. I've, I was talking to um, Stephen Roberts, who's the chief economist at Alexander Funds Management. Um, I do a, a show on Sky every now and again. I was speaking to him the other day. Um, I said, I do a show. It sounds more important than it is. I, I appear on a, on a panel. Um, Stephen was, I was asking Stephen, you know, are we, are we even judging economic growth correctly at the moment? You know, there is some sense that maybe we're in a lower growth environment permanently because of structural changes. Maybe we're in a lower inflation environment because of structural changes. I mean, obviously, the world's central banks don't agree, right? They're still trying to stoke this fire of economic growth. But it, it seems to me that I mean, you don't want to draw you don't want to draw too fine a line. But it's now a decade after, as you say, the, the end of the, the GFC, effectively, um, or maybe maybe towards the end, uh, we haven't yet retained or regained the sort of previous growth levels. Either either it's just a long, long cycle. Or something has structurally changed. Yeah, so I mean that's that's a good point. I mean, uh, there's a counter. Uh, my counter argument is that in, there are parts of the world where there is uh, very low un- unemployment. Right. I don't know what that means, right? I mean, very low unemployment means basically everybody who wanted employment has an employment. Yeah. yeah. Um, which you know, if you look at the U.S., then that's you know, there's been the strongest unemployment record. Uh, in a while, right? And that would suggest right. that the economy there is actually doing well. It, you know, maybe there's not enough inflation going on, but um, mm-hmm. everything else seems to be, you know, people who want jobs have jobs, therefore they have money, therefore they can spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not enough, uh, you know, inflation for various other reasons, right? Um, Europe is a little bit different, right? Because they have parts of the economy which, have, which still have very high um, unemployment rates. Mm-hmm. You know, really, they need, they have other problems that they need to really solve, including, you know, people, basically giving people jobs, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, it's an overall not not positive. Um, yeah. Now the reason we're talking about it too, we're not in Europe. We have you have some European friends. I'm not quite as wilder as you are, mate. I don't have too many European friends, but uh, <laughs> but fair to say we're talking about it because it kind of the the big kind of stories right now, the big headline stories are all geopolitical. It's Trump. It's Xi. Um, in in China, it's it's obviously the European growth story. It's kind of not a great. It's not a super positive international growth story. That being said, the National People's Congress of China came out this week and reaffirmed their growth target of 6 to 6.5%. So that was some degree comforting for markets, not higher than anyone expected, but certainly they avoided putting a five in front of that number and shocking the market. So that was positive to some degree. The US still continues to grow quite strongly. Europe, to some degree, it's kind of a side issue, right? It wasn't that long ago we were talking about Brexit and Grexit and everything else. Italy exit. Um, Italy might have withdrawn. There was some talk that if the far right nationalists won in France, that France might pull out. Um, do, should we worry too much about Europe? Is, is it is it the, the thin end of the wedge, or is it is it a, just a, a localized story and that the rest of the world's going to be okay? Well, it kind of matters, I think. I mean, it, maybe it depends. Like, if you think about equities, and you know, if you're talking about Aussie equities, then maybe um, there are portions of the market that are probably not directly impacted by what's happening in Europe, right? But if you're talking about consumer right. brands and you're selling things, you know, internationally, then you know, it does matter okay, to yeah. some extent. Yeah, um, and the other thing is, I mean, there's a, there's a, maybe a slight positive spin here. Like, you know, the market has weird ways of reacting, right? When there's when there's good good growth. And the 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 you know the banks basically say we're going to raise the interest rate, then the market doesn't like it because hey interest rate is going up so therefore you know the equity should not do well. When the, when the market is when when the banks basically say the interest rates are actually going to be held low, mm. then, then they say well you know that's good for equities <laughs> but there's not enough growth. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean you know as yeah. So I think if we talk about discount rates and so on, it basically means that you know we we can uh, continue to have low discount rates for a while, which means it's good for equities in some sense as long as we can find growth elsewhere. So maybe emerging economies and uh, maybe China, maybe the US. So, yeah. All right. So that's there. 
Unfortunately, we can't say it's only Europe with trouble because, as you pointed out to me during the week, and you seem you seem to take some some delight in this. Uh, our regular I don't take know. any delight. I don't well, take any come delight. Come on, you're smiling on, now. You were I'm, smiling then. Yeah. Oh, every time the house prices fall, I get a, I get a message from you on mm. Skype or an email or something saying oh, house price thirteen percent now in Sydney from peak to. I won't say trough, peak to now. Mm, peak to now. The, the trough, trough mm. is yet to be determined. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, housing construction not looking great. Mm-hmm. If there is a big, big, big risk factor in the Australian economy, it feels to me like it's housing. Um, 13% fall, you're on record of saying 25%, I think you're expecting peak to trough? Yeah. So another 8-ish percent to go? Yeah. yeah. But, but, but it's, you know, here's the thing, right? It, 13% and nothing really bad has ha- happened to the economy, right? right. I mean, well, that's what I was pe- going to ask you. Go on. People would have said 13, 15% fall, you know, we'd be in deep, like, recession or something. Nothing really has happened. So, wealth of- effect is the question. So, well, there's suppo- yeah. the economists tell us that, okay, when house prices go up, we all feel wealthier, so we spend more. Mm-hmm. When house prices go down, we feel less wealthy, so we spend less. Takes me to retail sales, which are up zero point one percent in January. That's zero point one. In other words, just, just, just positive, and not mm. that far away from a decline. Now, retail sales decline isn't a recession. Recessions are measured on GDP, not, yeah. not retail sales. But at some level, is it not already having an effect? Is, is the January are the January sales numbers not uh, you know a sign that we are listening to that wealth effect and it's impacting what we're spending? Yeah, so maybe to some extent. So I mean, car sales, new car sales are down, right? Um, so that's, you know, that, that's probably one of those big, uh, big, you know, uh, big ticket purchases that are probably down because of the wealth effect. Mm, yeah. But there, there are certain things that are not as, um, influenced by, you know, the wealth effect, right? I mean, mm. so I, I don't know. I mean, maybe if further fall will have broader effects. Maybe it will have some effect on, uh, um, on retail, yeah. further effects on retail. But I, I think it's, it's, I think it's a bit of a push to think that you know a twenty percent fall definitely, you know, puts us into a recession. It, there's, I, I think there's no such thing as definite. But, it, right? but, but you, we'd be lucky to it for it not to be though, right? I think it's fair. If 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 literally a million dollar property is now worth eight hundred thousand dollars, or an eight hundred thousand dollar property is now worth six hundred something grand, I can't do the maths. Um, it, it, to some degree, six hundred forty grand. Did it in my head? There you go. Smart. Um, <laughs> just, just had to salvage my credibility for a second. I can do that math in my head. Um, at, at some level, I mean, it's it's more likely than not, right? If you see so much value wiped off house prices, the impact on construction, the impact on retail sales, we'd be lucky to avoid a recession, wouldn't we? Well, well okay. So I think some of that is is a, is a mental head game, right? Mm. I mean, you know, your property is worth less, but does it really matter? Right. I mean, does it really matter? It, but, but because if you're paying we know a, that, but behaviorally, do what do people think? That's yeah, the question. But many right? people would probably just go around, you know, uh, their business, paying their mortgages, mm. and I think it it has impact on the fringes. I, I think the construction side is important. I mean, if the investors are not coming back into the market, that you know has a direct impact on probably the uh, you know the number of new dwellings that need to be constructed and so on. The demand mm. goes down mm. a bit. Um, at some point, you think those people who are on the sidelines who have never bought because the property looked like you know hellishly expensive to them. <laughs> <laughs> they come back in the market, yeah, right? right? And at that point, you know, that acts as a stabilization point. I mean, so there are so many people who are who would feel disenfranchised right now mm. because they don't have a house, because they can't have a house because it's too expensive. Those people right. come back into the market. So it stabilizes at that point. I mean, I think there's no... 
I mean, there's some data data yeah. out there that says that okay, maybe retail sales are slowing down and and a few things. But you know, um, some of those retail sales might be going online, right? I mean, you know, I don't know whether that that's being captured yeah. in in this data set or not, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure we're spending money differently too. I think you're right. The other thing is not only is it going online. I think retail sales capture physical goods. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure more of us are spending more money on experience is a cliche, right? But that kind of idea of where and how we're spending our cash, we're putting more money online, as you say, and then spending money more money on holidays or on things yeah. that maybe we're doing rather than things that we're buying yeah like my daughter buys like roblox robo roblox bucks i mean okay. that's like you know playing this game and buying these bucks i mean it's <laughs> I like no it's, idea what that is. it's a complete waste of money right? but, that's, <laughs> it's, but it's, it's digital everything is right, digital right, right. right? So, yeah. which is kind of the concern for the we'll wrap this up but it's kind of the concern for the economy at one level if if we're all spending money more money with google and amazon and apple and uber and all that kind of stuff more and more of our cash ends up going over the pond to the US and maybe less of it actually ends up in Australian pockets of companies, employees, the, the things we're spending money, I, you know, I, I don't know what the reality is, but if you're spending a buck in a retail shop, I reckon 95 cents of that goes to Australia somewhere, right? It's Australian workers in the retail store, it's Australian truck drivers, Australian warehouses. Yes, the product might originally have come from China, so a portion of that goes to China, maybe it's not 95 cents, maybe it's 60 cents. If you're buying Roblox, wherever they are, and they're online virtual things, you're buying something from Amazon or you're, uh, you know, uh, buying a game from Google or a song from Apple, um, at some level that money is kind of, you know, not much ends up in Australia, right? Maybe a bit of GST, but not much more. That, that's true. I, I mean, you know, what I, what I say for that is that, you know, we, we can't have it two ways, right? We can't have right. the best and yet not spend on innovation. I think, what you know, yeah. we need to be competitive. We need to spend on innovation. I mean, we, you know, this is a country which is rich, which has everything it wants. It's got great climate, great beaches. We should spend more money on innovation, basically. That's so, my answer for that. So we have one with the Australian Apple and the Australian Google and the Australian Amazon. Well, basically, we should, we, you know, we should compete. Oh, well, we have nice. the Atlassians. So. There you go. There you go. Which list on the New York Stock No, the NASDAQ. Well, but they still have the head office here, or at least part of their allegedly. Head yeah, allegedly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. Let's 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 get past the macro because I think, look, I, you know, this is it's a tough one, right? I think I think there's two questions: what is happening, and then, frankly, what does it mean? Mm. And the what does it mean? We kind of end up being broken records on that because. So Kevin Gandhi, who works with us, uh, made a comment the other day quoting Howard Marks, which is some things are important but unknowable. Mm. And I kind of think at some level, if we could know what's happening economically, we'd probably do something about it. The possibility, the, the likelihood that it's actually knowable, particularly at this stage, you could actively, regularly try and do something to make money out of it. That's the bit that's hard, right? So it's really important. It's not overly knowable. If it is, we should do something about it, as I said. And we'll keep an eye on it because sometimes there may be some things to do. Right now, I think we're kind of saying, look, we don't know. There's some clouds on the horizon, but not enough to, not enough confidence and, and frankly, not enough options to know what to do differently. True. Great. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's open the Fool mailbag. Let's do it. Insert mailbag sound effect here that we don't have. <laughs> All right, mate, we've got our first question. Our first question comes from Jay. Literally Jay. All right, Jay. Uh, Jay says, hey, guys, love the show. Excellent. Good man, Jay. We love that. Or maybe good lady, Jay. We don't know. Jay might be a lady. Um I have a history question for you. What happens to markets during major world events such as world wars? Oh, dear, Jay. We've just tried to get positive, mate. You're dragging mm. us back down. During the two world wars, did they shut down markets? Do governments have contingencies for these events to guarantee investments, or is it just a case of if the, if the company you invest in survives, uh, you, you, your investment stands, and if not, too bad? Not that I'm expecting such an event, he says. I just got thinking about how connected we are now compared to then and how it would be dealt with in 2019. I don't 
really want to contemplate this question. Well, as World War Three happens, Doc, what are the government going to do? Well, well, the first thing I want to say is that um, uh, you know, if Jay thinks we are really that old, that we were there during the you know the time of the World War One and World War Two, then we've got a problem here. We've got to solve solve for that. Problem. Mate, you see my photo. He's, he's entitled to believe I'm 68, just quietly. So, so, so um, what could happen? I mean. You know, this is one of those doomsday type of scenario. Like anything can happen, right? But if the yeah. world is going to be blown up by nu- <laughs> nuclear weapons, well, then it doesn't matter. The old quote: I don't know how World War Three is going to be fought, but World War Four is going to be fought with sticks and stones. Yeah. So, yeah. so if the world is going to end with you know a nuclear vapor, it doesn't really matter whether you have money or not. I, I mean, I really at that. Bike bands and shotguns, right? Yeah. Well, that time, you know, maybe you just find a hole, <laughs> dig yourself a hole, and uh, I mean, I don't. I'm not making light of no, the I question. Don't. I think the, the question is valid. I think in smaller skirmish, skirmishes, nothing really happens. Yeah. If there's like in you know, a localized war in the you know near Australia, it will have an impact on the we, markets. We've for been sure. through the Iraq wars, and we've been through other yeah. other conflicts where there's been you know conflagrations around the world and hasn't impacted world capital markets meaningfully. At least not to the point of having them shut down or anything. Exactly. Like exactly. And you know the the beauty of being in Australia, we are far away from everything. In theory. Well, Unless the Kiwis decide to come and well, that's okay. get in their boats and head west yeah. and we're, we're in trouble then. That's okay. They don't have uh, spiders and stuff, so it's okay. Or a navy, so that helps. Uh, there, there we go. <laughs> so we are fine. <laughs> Jay, I think, look, I'll, I'll add to Doc's point. In, 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 in serious, when the market is dislocated meaningfully by something unexpected, they may close markets for a couple of days if they want the world to kind of just chill out a little bit. There has been examples of that in the past where, um, frankly, for very, very short periods of time, days, a day or days, um, just because there's so much going on, hey, no one's really sure what to do. And in that case, you're kind of better off shutting the market down and letting it, letting it get a bit haywire. Other than that, the market continues to trade almost all the time regardless. Um, you're right, absolutely, in some cases, share prices will get hit because pessimism takes over. Um, we may well see, you know, in a big multinational kind of conflict, shares fall 25, 30, 40%. I, I can imagine 50 in, you know, in a serious case example. Mm-hmm. The reality, of course, is that post uh, those things, markets have always gone back up. And in fact, um, during those times, there have been actually great times to invest because mm-hmm. generally speaking, people get too pessimistic and to Doc's point, unless we end up with World War Three and some sort of nuclear annihilation, there's every probability that post that, that the world gets back on with things. And over the long term, uh, you know, Warren Buffett made the point that, um, you know, the market's gone from, I don't know, the actual numbers, but something like 60 points on the Dow to 11,000 over his lifetime, including a couple of world wars and everything that goes with that. So um, good good theoretical question. The answer is that markets might close period, uh, very for a very short time if there is a dislocation. Uh, other than that, it'll go on trading because at the end of the day, there's a value for an, for an investment, right? And if, if people aren't prepared to pay a high value because of the uncertainty, they'll bid it down. If people want to pay a lot for it, they'll bid it up. That's just kind of what markets do. Modly for money. Mate, our next question is from Anon. Anon says, a question for the show, which I really, really love. Mm. I think he's sucking up to us just mm. quietly. Um, always a lot of talk about the PE ratio. How helpful is it to qualify that measure by also looking at the PEG, which is price earnings to growth ratio? Now, mate, you're a you're a growth investor. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what the PEG is relative to the PE, right? And how important you think it is for investors, right? So PE is basically price to earnings, okay. right? So you you're paying some number of dollars for some number of dollars of earnings. So right. you pay 10 bucks for a dollar of earnings, the P is 10 divided by one, so the P is 10. Right. Now, you could have two companies, one growing earnings at, say, 20%, another growing, that. And another growing earnings at, like, 1%. Okay. Right? Easy. Um, <laughs> if both are trading at PE of 10, yes. then you can't really say that, they, you know, they are effectively similarly valued, right? Because right. Uh, the one that's growing at 20%, that would look cheaper if you think about its earnings, say, a few years from now, if it can continue growing at 20%, then roughly speaking, in three and a half years, you're going to be doubling your earnings. So now it's a PE of five. Right. 
at the current price if you look forward. And the one guy at 1% will take 100 <laughs> years to get to that level, <laughs> It'll right? take forever, right? Right. So, um, so th- therefore, when you, when you look at PEG, you're basically saying, well, we'll look at the PE and divide it by the, price, the earnings growth rate. Okay. And then that gives you a ratio, another ratio, <laughs> <laughs> um, that gives you, that factors in the growth, basically. All right. right. So, so it's me, a normalization. Let, let me do those maths. So we've got a company that's earning 10 bucks. Yep. Uh, sorry, earning a dollar. Sorry. Price is 10. So it's a PE of 10. Those two companies both have a PE of 10. The first one's growing at 20%. Yep. 10 divided by 20. So the P is, PEG is 0.5. Yep. The other one growing at 1%, 10 divided by 1, the PEG is 10. You, or you could do it simpler. You could just do 10 divided by 0.2. Right. Which makes it, you know, basically 100 divided by 20. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And I think I'm still with you. <laughs> uh, it's not even, a, yeah, it's 1,000 divided by 20. Sorry. Yep. Wrong math. Yep. So that's like a 50. Right. <laughs> Whereas this one would be 10 divided by 0.01. Right. <laughs> Right, I'm not doing those maths, dude. Right. So I, I did, I did yeah. 20 percent of 800. That's the best I can do today. <laughs> so, so basically, basically it's the peg, Friday morning. So the pe- peg <laughs> is going to be significantly higher right, right, for right. for the one that's growing faster. Right, right. And otherwise, oh, sorry, what we're so looking the, for the peg is going to be smaller, which would make it look look more valuable. Right. So less than one for the peg is generally a good investment. That the yeah. heuristic says yeah. greater than one, not as good. One to two is okay, maybe. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, because you you know you'll be paying high multiples for things that are growing fast. Do you maybe. use the peg? Not really. Why not? Well, like, I mean, the problem with PEG, first of all, like many companies that I look at, they don't even have a PE. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, of no E, right? <laughs> so, so they don't have the E. If they don't have the E, then you can't use the PEG. Right. Uh, so that's a small problem. I'm trying to find a really clever washing laundry analogy, <laughs> some sort of metaphor to throw in here, a nice pun, I've got nothing. So I'm going to have to leave that alone. All right, so it's only useful if it's earnings. That's that's the first thing. Yeah. If it has earnings, it, has, it can be useful. Okay. Uh, but, you know, then you – I mean, it's – it's it's a rough eyeballing thing. I mean, yeah. you know, if you've got similar companies, one growing faster than the other, then you know, you can eyeball and say, well, you know, relatively speaking, which one is better? Yeah, I think but, that's a good point. I think, look, for, for what it's worth, I'll add to that. I think um, it, you, the relative is the key word you mentioned there, mate. Yeah. And, and it's a way of putting companies with similar PEs into a more a broader range of outcomes or a more broad range of valuations because PEs look backwards or maybe one year forwards if you're lucky by definition. They don't talk about, as you mentioned, Doc, the, the chance that if you'd grow at 30% for 20% for five years, um, you're going to get meaningfully larger amounts of growth and so you should pay more for that company whereas both companies might be on a PE of 10. If you've got Telstra and Tesla on the same PE for the sake of the argument, clearly one's got more growth ahead of it than the other one and so you need to think about that in some context. PEG helps to contextualize the valuation in the context of its growth. So it can be useful on a relative basis. It still doesn't tell you how much you should pay, just where there are better or worse ideas because, frankly, the growth may not continue or it might accelerate, it might decelerate. Right. It's just a way of contextualizing some historical data. Yeah, and, and it might still be expensive. You know, Both companies might be actually severely expensive, for example, or underpriced or whatever. Yeah. Just I hope that helps Anon. Modly full money. Got to go to John now. John says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Excellent. Good man, John. That's- and listen to it every Friday afternoon. Awesome. Is John one of your relatives or mine? Oh, must be one. No? No, not mine. No, must be mine. All right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I've got a relative called John, but I do now. Uh, John, thank you for the thank you for the comments. Thanks for listening. We, I'm sorry you haven't got anything better to listen to, mate, but I appreciate you listening to us instead. Um, in one of your next broadcasts, would it be possible to provide an update on O Media? OOH Media. I hate that. You also seen OOH, though, with an exclamation mark on some billboards around the place. These guys are outdoor advertisers, which is one of the recommendations of Share Advisor, which is the service I run, of which I'm a member. So thanks, John, for, for being a member as well. The stock hasn't been going so well of late. Any reasons or considerations for the longer term that we need to take on board? Keep up the good work. Cheers, John. 
I'll jump on this one, Doc, and you can throw some extra thoughts on because it's a recommendation of ours. I have no awesome. thoughts on this one. I'll let you have it. <laughs> Look, so here's the here's the thing, Rob. We talked about the economy as we started up the podcast, and O-Media is, is leveraged meaningfully to the broader economy, right? When the economy goes well, so lev- leverage means you get a, a larger proportional outcome relative to the underlying instrument or asset or or stat in this case. So when the economy is growing an okay rate, O-Media grows faster because companies are paying more and more money for advertising. More of them are advertising, trying to get a slice of that growth. And so generally speaking, both the revenue and profits of advertisers expands at a faster rate than the economy. The same is true for free-to-air broadcasters, for example, radio stations such as Triple M, just for a bit of a plug. Uh, and and that, that's good. In, a, in bad times, though, when, when things start to contract, they contract more quickly because one of the first things that companies tend to cut is advertising dollars. So you say, well, sales are struggling. Maybe they're going to turn down. We've got to cut costs. What can we do? The most obvious and the largest uh, discretionary item in many companies' budgets, particularly those who do advertise, is advertising. And so if you're thinking about, well, how do I kind of keep the profit line under control in a, in a downturn? Some companies, I think it's short-sighted for the record, but some companies cut advertising to try and make the P&L look good while they wait for the economy to recover. And again, if they do that, O-Media gets less revenue. That hurts the bottom line disproportionately. And so they're leveraged to the upside and the downside. My guess at the moment is that that's largely what's happening in terms of market price for O-Media. Um, the stock market looking forward saying, well, if the economy's in trouble, maybe O-Media's in trouble. That's that's frankly on a, on a – that's a, not an unreasonable assumption if you take the uh, preconditions. Say if the economy turns down, does O-Media struggle more? Yes, absolutely. So that, that's that's undo- undoubtedly true. What it misses, though, I think, to my mind, and why it's a recommendation for us, is that, A, I don't think the chances of the downturn are as big as other people do. More importantly, through a cycle, I think O-Media has the wherewithal to withstand the cycle and then grow on the other end of it. So do I think there's going to be no volatility? No, I think there's going to be plenty of volatility for O-Media. You need to be prepared for that if you're investing in the stock. And so, John, you say you own it. We can't give personal advice, but anyone who owns O-Media should be prepared for a bit of volatility when it comes to the share price. On the flip side... It is consolidating the market, it's growing the market, lots more opportunities. We stood in front of a, um, a lift well this morning, Doc, on the way up, this, up the escalators, and there was some advertising that was being shown to us while we waited for the lift. That sort of digital advertising is being used, um, lots of digital billboards being put up. I think Omedia's long-term structural growth is, is pretty impressive, and the opportunity is great. doesn't mean there can't be some volatility in the meantime. I see them in the ma- in the malls, you know, all over the place, right? Yeah, that's the only thing I can comment about it. I've, I've seen them a lot in the malls, and <laughs> I've noticed go. the name. A bit, a bit of Peter Lynch by what you know. I like yeah. it, Doc. Modly for money. Uh, next question comes to us from Nick. How we can't throw the mailbag at Reddit knots, mate. This is good. This is um, great. We love mailbag. We love it. We love it. So Nick says, "Hi, I love the show and the banter. Keep up the great work, good man, Nick. That's why you get mentioned, mate, because you give us a compliment, and we're nothing if not narcissistic." Uh, a few <laughs> weeks ago, you suggested to look at the VHT shares. Now, I hate stock codes. Doc, is that Volpara? That is Volpara Health, Health Technology. There we go. VHT. Which, which following the announcement of below expectation results, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. As from my reading, the results weren't attributable to the value of the product but more difficulties with the sales team getting set up and difficulties in Europe. So my question is, do you think it's still a buy? And if so, would it be best to buy in this dip? What say you, Doc? Okay. So for some disclosure, we actually, I own Volpara shares. Volpara is a recommendation in Extreme Opportunities and a recommendation in Pro. You can assume Mark. we're you can assume we're probably particularly biased, or at least at least have a pre pre confirmed view. <laughs> yeah, pre confirmed view. So we we like the company. Yes. We think it has uh, long term potential, um, and 
that all said, it's a risky company because yep. it's really small yep. and it's growing really fast um, and it's really trying to scale up. And, and, and as Nick basically pointed out, mate, you're right. The, the problems are not about the product. The problems were um, about, you know, getting the sales to happen, which is basically getting the sales team to ramp up. Mm. There are some GDPR related issues, which is the uh, European privacy regulation and so on. I think that's a minor, there was a minor issue. Okay. The, the major issue really was uh, just ramp up of sales in the U.S., no, uh, I, I like to always, always, you know, again, as I said, we own the stock in, in, in a portfolio. We have it in a service and I own the, the shares personally. Okay. But that, with that said, I mean, many of these companies, you know, they, you know, you live or die by your ability to actually get the sales to happen. You want to get to scale. This company is still not at scale mm. and that risk is always there. So we should just be mindful of the fact that, you know, um, this is risky because you need to be able to ramp up. You know, when you're growing 100%, but from a very, very, you know, at the 100% kind of rate, but from a very, very small base, a lot mm. of things can go wrong because, you know, you're still very, very early on in the game. Mm. Yeah, that said, I think the product has um, a meaningful uh, contribution. Uh, there's a lot of uh, tailwind from the uh, from regulatory authorities in terms of, you know, measuring breast density uh, in a quantitative fashion so that it can be used to essentially triage people for... Uh, um, for screening mm. and, and breast density is really on the, on, on, on the rise. I mean, you know, there's so many young people who are now being detected with breast, breast cancer. Mm. So it, it's a good company. It solves an important problem. I think it has a uh, very strong potential, which is why I like it, but it's risky as well. Uh, you know, I've, I've used the word risky many times. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not trying to chicken out, but I'm just trying yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Uh, just trying to say that, you know, th- this is, you, you know, you don't, this is not something that you go all in. Actually, you should not go all in in any, any, any one equity, <laughs> but this is definitely something that you need to, you know, again, small company. So a small company, big possibilities, but not inconsequential risks. Absolutely. Good. That sounds pretty extreme. That is very extreme. Extreme opportunities. Very extreme. A good extreme. name for a service you should run. If people are interested, they could always look it up and, uh, and join us. Join you at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Raj, thank you for a great question. Hopefully that helped. Um, as always, if you have any other thoughts, let us know. That wasn't Raj's question, sorry. My it was Nick's. That was Nick's question. I'm about to go to Raj's question. I almost got, I almost, almost didn't answer your question, Raj, but we're still here. We're still here. Motley Fool Money. All right. Raj says, surprisingly enough, Firstly, congratulations on a great podcast, which I download on a weekly basis <laughs> and listen on weekends. I see a pattern here, Captain. I almost, you, know, I, you know, I almost feel bad. I'm just not humble enough to feel that bad. Well, I, I don't feel bad at all. Like, this, is, this is awesome. I mean, who doesn't like this? I love it. Like, you know, thank we, you, guys. That's I pretty mean, much the <laughs> we did the podcast. So you can tell us how good we are, really. Let's yeah. be honest. It's all, all about right. that. So, so Raj has a question. Uh, he says, I have a question which I hope the Motley Fool team can answer on an ETF. HVST is the code. The okay. Beta Shares Australian Dividend Harvester Fund. Mm-hmm. My understanding is this ETF pays a 10 to 11% on a monthly basis and tracks most of the ASX top 20 stocks. But the actual stock has been tracking around 1450. So that's the security, the mm-hmm. HSVS, HVST security. Um, but was high as $17. So I was interested in getting the team's thoughts. Is this a good stock to have from an income investment perspective? Also, are there any other EFTs, ETFs, that may pay monthly dividend that may be more attractive with decent capital and income growth? Look forward to listening to your podcast to get your feedback. Keep up the great work. Cheers, Raj. Have any thoughts on the yeah? So I, I mean, so I haven't specifically looked at this ETF, but 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 a couple of high level things, right? Mm-hmm. If this is based on if it's most of its underlying holdings are the ASX twenty, right? Yes. Then 
the the ASX twenty, the top twenty companies on the ASX, that maybe pay a dividend around the six percent range at best, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit less, right? Yep. Um, With some franken credits running, but yeah, that, yeah, that, but that's that's what franken credits. You know, maybe you if you put franken credits, maybe you get to eight percent, maybe. In, Eight and a half, nine percent. So, how do you get to ten or eleven percent? Right? Um, uh, they, there must be some other active strategies being deployed here. Mm-hmm. So, it could be around, say, derivative options, for example, selling calls or maybe selling ports mm-hmm. to juice up the income. That's um, a possibility, um, you know. But I would say this is an income strategy with where you're unlikely to get. Capital gains. Yep. That's number one. And then I would, the number two thing I would point out <laughs> mm-hmm. is um, there is risk to this strategy because mm-hmm. you're using derivatives. Mm-hmm. So if you're using derivatives, I'm just making the assumption that there is use of derivatives here. But if there is use of derivatives, there is additional risk to to bear in mind. Mm-hmm. In general, in general, I'm just a little wary. Again, mm-hmm. without knowing anything of this product, and maybe the product is actually uh, you know fantastic, and I have you know, no views on the product as such. But in general, when when you're trying to get juice more than what is typically available, mm-hmm. then uh, you know, you know, you have to give something, right? It's like you know, there's no free lunch. Yeah. So, very true, mate. I'm going to. I have had a little bit of a look at this ETF, and I'm going to uh, share some of your concerns. I'm going to share a couple more. I would not encourage our members to invest in this particular ETF, as a matter of course. Again, we can't give personal advice, Raj. So, uh, I won't tell you what you should do. Uh, over three years, the fund has delivered a net return per annum of zero point two six percent. In other words, your money's gone exactly nowhere. In fact, since inception. It's down 0.76% since 29th of October 2014. That includes, that's the, that includes the returns from the monthly income, right? Right. So what okay. that tells you is basically that anything the, anything the fund is, is earning or making is being paid out in income. Now, that's not a terrible thing if that's your preference. The problem is in that three years when the fund's gone up 0.26% a year, so let's call it charitably 0.8% over three years total, the index is up 23%. Mm. So if you've owned this, you've underperformed the index by a very, very large margin. If you think about, let's say you had 100 grand, um, after three years, you've got 100,800 bucks ish. Um, compared to 123 odd thousand dollars, had you bought the index? Now, you don't have to buy the index. There's reasons why you wouldn't, and income is one of those. The reality here is that the, the, the fund simply hasn't kept up with the market's return. In fact, it's cost you a decent amount of money, a lot of money, in fact. It's cost you 20 grand to be invested in this product if you had 100 grand to start with. Um, there's other ways of generating income from that. Now, again, you can argue about it. But frankly, if you're paying out that sort of income, now when they say 10 to 11% on a monthly basis, we need to be clear, that's 10 to 11% per annum. But the distribution is paid on a monthly basis. Mm. That's about 1% a month or so you're getting. So don't don't be fooled and think you're getting 10% every month because that would be lovely, but not going to happen. So look, just just be mindful. There's no free lunch in investing. Uh, Raj, you asked about capital growth and income. I think that's the right question to be asking. At the end of the day, you want a total return that's positive and ideally um, meaningfully positive so that you can actually keep up with inflation, maybe get a little bit more on top of your money. Depends, of course, where you are in your financial life and what you're looking for from your investments. But as a matter of course, I think just be a little bit mindful of where, you know, it's some, I would say it's too good to be true because that makes it sound like I'm being critical and maybe some, somewhat questioning the, the morality of the product. That's not certainly the case. If you want this product, it, it has its uses if you know what you're getting into. I think there's many, many better ways to make some money on the market. I don't think investing in this particular one is, is, a, is one I'd, I'd go with, partly because of the return, mostly because of the return, quite frankly. Also, because if you look at where the money is invested, as you mentioned, Doc, um, 24, uh, 29% is in financials, 
24% is in materials. Mm. Again, we're, we're generally speaking, I'm personally 53, 54% of your portfolio in two sectors, particularly banking and mining. Mm. Not somewhere I'd want to be, and frankly, not somewhere I want to be getting my income from. Modly full money. Another question from uh, J.M. Podiatry at Jackson Muska on Twitter. Okay. Muska, Mikoska, uh, Mikoska, I'm sorry. Mikoska. Jackson Mikoska. Yep. <laughs> um, he says, hi, Jess. I was wondering when looking at the weighting of your portfolio, what is the best metric to use? If I align it with units owned, I feel it gets skewed by cheaper shares, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. But if I do it by price paid, am I then not anchoring to that price? He then says, because probably he's listened to it before. P.S. Love the podcast. I've been listening for two years now. So um, thank you for, for thank you for listening. I'll, I'll assume you're Jackson. Maybe Jackson's your surname. Uh, but in any case, Jay and Podiatry, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Doc, how do we think about weighting units? Mm. He's right. If a one one hundred dollar yep. share and one one dollar share, clearly you wouldn't say it's equal weighting. So units isn't the right way to go. He's dead right there. Do you choose price paid? How how else would you think about this? Is, this is a great question, you no? Know, because a couple of our colleagues were asking me this. You know, basically they were interested in the weightings of. What I own versus what they own. So, you right, know, okay. Ryan Newman and Kevin, who you mentioned. Yes. Uh, you know, we had a little chat Great about fools. this. Great fools. So, uh, this is a fantastic question. Uh, what, what we would do if you want to look at the weightings mm-hmm. of your portfolio is basically look at the total dollar you own in a equity today. Okay. Right. Right. So, let's say you own, uh, three companies, Telstra and, you know, Woolworths w- and West Farmers. W- Woolworths and West Farmers. If you, if you own, say, uh, you know, $500 in Telstra. Mm-hmm. Today, yes. right? Doesn't matter what you paid five years ago probably, or two years probably ago. Probably more, unfortunately. But well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Maybe you paid less. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, what, what you what you paid right, in the past right. does not matter. Correct. Cur- currently, let's say you have five hundred dollars invested in um, Telstra. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've got two hundred invested in um, Woolworths and mm-hmm. maybe three hundred in Coles. Nice. So your total portfolio is a thousand bucks. Yep. Um, then your weight. To Telstra is fifty percent. Right, so five hundred divided by a thousand, fifty percent. Half your portfolio is in Telstra. Telstra. No matter what you paid for it, no matter yeah. what you paid for, Woolies or West Farmers. Exactly. Right. So you basically look at what you currently own. You mm-hmm. add up the value, basically, of all your ent- entities. That's your total portfolio value. Right. And you basically find the weight of each entity or each stock or each holding, each company that you own. And you look at the, again, total market value today and you divide it by the total in a percentage form that gives you the allocation. Right. Right. So you, you don't look at the price that you paid that, that as he said is anchoring and that doesn't matter today. And, and you, you don't look at the share price because again, that really doesn't matter because mm. what matters is how many shares of the company you actually own. Right. I think that's important. That's, uh, by the way, the same way that the ASX 200 measures its own performance by mar- effectively market cap, which is the, the equivalent for an individual investor is the market value of your shares. It's kind of the same equivalent as the market cap used to, to calculate an index. And as you say, Doc, that's important because let's let's pretend there's a, a, a very different world where Telstra triples in price all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. It goes from 50% of your portfolio to, and I can't do the maths in my head, but probably something like 70, 80% of your portfolio mm-hmm. if the others stay stable, um, just because that becomes 1500 bucks as a, as a proportion mm-hmm. of a two-odd thousand dollar portfolio, again, give or take. Um, and so in that context, you really are you know, the, the weighting of the company, frankly, wherever Telstra moves, its impact is going to be very, very large yeah. relative to your portfolio. And that's really the question you want to ask. When you're thinking about how your portfolio is constructed, the question really is, how how exposed am I to a movement in a particular company or industry or sector or geography mm-hmm. so you can assess whether that's an appropriate level to hold? And so what will happen from today is based on today's weighting. One of the most useful things I've heard, this is not a useful actual way to manage but a way to think about it psychologically is assume that every morning your portfolio was assume every night your portfolio was sold Mm. and you had to buy it back in the same proportion this Mm. morning because frankly you can do that i could log on at 10 o'clock this morning sell everything and buy them back in the same proportions Mm -hmm. or buy something else 
That's the only thing you need to think about. So if you if someone said to you, I'm going to your portfolio was all cash last night, and this morning I'm going to put fifty percent of your portfolio in Telstra. What do you think? You either say, oh, great idea, good idea, yeah, let's do that, or you go, oh, that's a bit high. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing that, that tells you how you should think about your current portfolio. Now, this maybe maybe this is about Telstra, frankly. I don't know that I want half my portfolio in Telstra. Uh, but any company, any proportion, any portfolio you have, if you had to go to cash this morning and rebuy everything, that's the question to ask yourself. Would I rebuy in the same proportions? That's how you should think about your weighting, and that's how you should think about your portfolio management. Mm-hmm. Good advice. We made it, mate. We made it. We made it to the bottom of the foolish mailbag. Thank you, fools, for listening to us, answering your questions. We hope you enjoy listening to them as much as we enjoy answering them because, frankly, you know, we're kind of, we like to be fools of the people. And uh, and we do this for you and we we hope that you're enjoying it. We also hope that we're answering the questions you're asking and, frankly, talking about the topics you care about. As always, please continue to give us more feedback, questions, ideas, thoughts, criticisms but be kind be, be nice please just be nice to be us nice. we're, we're yeah. nice people exactly we have feelings yeah uh, so if you want to I have touch, deep feelings you do have deep <laughs> mostly about tesla and apple but we'll talk about that another day uh we we, we will uh we'll talk about that maybe next week we'll say uh, in the meantime you can get to us at info at fool.com.au our member services fools make sure that we get those requests those emails that you pass on to us also on Twitter, as I say, um, that's probably our preferred method because we can interact with you. It's at the Motley Fool AU, all one word on Twitter, as you know, at TMF Scott P or at Anir Ban Mahanti. You can get us on Twitter. We'll interact with you and answer your questions, collect them up and answer them next week or the week after. Um, and you can actually also get us on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, feel free to drop us a note there as well. Um, always something that we like to hear a little bit more about. Uh, we don't do a lot on Facebook, but if you're on Facebook, not on Twitter, feel free to contact us there as well if that makes it easier. Please do. We'd like to hear from you. Now, before we go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. Should I say through Apple Podcasts? These are through iTunes. What's the appropriate thing to say? You know, just iTunes. Podcast Podcast is like basically the brand owned by Apple. I reckon 70% of all podcasts listen to on an Apple device. That's true. It's impressive. So, 7 out of 10 of you, thank you for... um, I won't, I won't get a Apple bashing. That's not very fun. Yeah. Um, if you like what we're doing, please do give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast. Share it with your friends. Leave us a review. As I said, most of our listeners come from word of mouth, and we do appreciate you sharing it with people if you're enjoying what you're hearing. Don't forget, you can also get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.